Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Banter on the Parkway. I am your host, Brian from BannersOnTheParkway.com, and I'm joined as always by our resident 3 and D guy. Uh, emphasis on the D, it's Brad. How you doing, Brad? For the sake of this being a family podcast, I'm just assuming defense there, correct? Yeah, lockdown. And okay. you cannot, I don't even know if you can throw a basketball from the three-point line to the hoop at this point um you know your shoulders being what they are so and your shot being what it's always been right i didn't want to say that actually i did want to say that you're a bad shooter um also joining us is a guy whose scoop game i wish was as nasty in the journalism world as it is on the basketball court it's joel joel how you doing i'm doing great Everybody hates my scoop game because I just stand about six foot three and shoot it from about four feet off the ground. Not always what they're expecting, but when your vertical is shorter than Brad's shooting range, which as we've discussed is zero, you got to improvise. That's true. And for the record, I can't play defense or shoot a scoop shot. So way to go guys um but we are joining you um this week after xavier went one and one over the past week they had that tough loss at butler by a score of 66 to 61 in a game that probably was not as close as a five-point margin indicates i want to say um and then went to madison square garden and came away with uh Improbable, shall we say, 77-74 victory, not because St. John's is a juggernaut this year, but um, because Xavier turned the ball over 22 times and still won at a high major opponent. Um, so Xavier right now, as we as we stand on bracket matrix, is um, kind of moved off the bubble. They're the last nine seed uh, as of today on bracket bracket matrix they're on 104 of the 108 brackets reporting um so where does the rest of the big east stand as far as the bubble goes um assuming obviously the five teams in front of xavier um in the big east are not on the bubble so brad um where do the teams behind xavier stand on the bubble um right now i think georgetown can make an argument that they're going to get into the tournament which is even more improbable than turning the ball over 22 times at a high major, somehow still winning. Um, they're in 80 of the 108 brackets on bracket matrix, and that is almost totally because they continue to somehow win games that they have no business winning. They went to Butler this week and won by seven. They picked up a good Q2 win against DePaul. They've won a Q1 game at St. John's. I believe that now their entire roster is hurt. Um, the guys who are playing are hurt. The guys who aren't playing are hurt. Uh, Patrick Ewing is probably coaching hurt at this point in time. That comes after everybody leaving in whatever that was that happened at the start of the year. So Georgetown has done an incredible job to get themselves back on the right side of the bubble for now. I don't think that their margin for error is very good just because they're right on the edge of the cut line and they also – if one more person gets hurt, they're not going to be able to feel it. Um, Providence has an argument. Uh, they've got five Q1 wins. They have a bad loss 
um, and then three Q3 losses. So their argument is going to be based on the strength of what they can do from here on out. They're at Georgetown in what is a huge bubble game tonight. Um, then they've got Marquette, Villanova, Xavier, and Paul. So they have the chances to do something to get themselves into the tournament. Um, but they are kind of where we were looking at Xavier being maybe two weeks ago, where you've got to win some improbable games and then grab something in the Big East tournament. After that, St. John's and Paul are not getting in. Um, they might appear on a couple projections, maybe, but they just don't have the wins. They don't have the opportunities left. They both need the at-large if they're going to get in. But I don't think it's unreasonable to say that the Big East can still get eight teams into the NCAA tournament. Okay. Large um, for St. John's and DePaul, you mean the auto bid, correct? Yeah, yeah. They have to win the Big East tournament to get in. Right. So by at large, you meant the opposite of at large. I did. Okay, cool. Um, so right now on bracket matrix, Providence is in on one bracket out of 108. <laughs> um, so that's probably not ideal. Um, but they are at least, you know, I guess around the conversation for being in the, the NCAA tournament. Um, but it certainly helps that um, – you know, they play in the Big East where they have opportunities to pick up the wins they need to get themselves up off the bubble as opposed to, uh, I don't know, like if they played in the American Athletic Conference, they probably wouldn't have those opportunities. Um, just plucking something out of thin air, not related to anything. Um, pick a conference at so, Right. And I just picked the American just as a for example of a conference that's nowhere near as good as the Big East and uh is kind of funny <laughs> to look at what um, we anyway. joke about that but memphis is in the american they're on the bubble in kind of the same spot that providence is and they have a q4 game coming up tonight so providence has a chance to knock off a team that is currently projected to be in the tournament and pick up a big q1 win memphis who is in the same spot of having to pick up some huge wins to get in gets to take on East Carolina tonight. They'll follow that up here in a couple games by going to Tulane. And you just got to imagine that, like, say, Joe Lunardi doesn't really have those games circled. Right. I mean, Memphis does have Houston twice. I think if they don't beat Houston either of those times, though, they really can't do that much to help themselves. I mean, they could beat Wichita State at home, but um, that's not that valuable of a win, I don't think. Uh, I don't know how we got off talking about Memphis, but um, anyway, uh, is Penny Hardaway a good coach? Just feed for thought here. <laughs> um, so <laughs> kind of back on to uh, the Xavier uh, subject, and I guess the topic of conversation a lot over the last couple of weeks has been Quentin Gooden and what his role is on this team going forward. He of course has not started since the January 15th game at Marquette where Xavier lost by 20. Um, he sat the next two games out with a knee injury uh, since he's been back. It's been kind of a mixed bag from him uh, this past week. He only played 10 minutes at St. John's. He played 26 minutes at Butler. He didn't score in either game. So uh, Joel, uh, what, role if any does Quentin Gooden have um for this team going forward man 
And it's, you know, you, you look at the team and there's just such an obvious slot for Q where you would say, we need a guy who can bring the ball up under pressure, initiate the offense, maybe hit an open shot or two, maybe play some D. And that is the role that even at the beginning of the year, you could see him filling. But, you know, aside from the the three-point barrage he unleashed in the Marquette loss, you wonder if that guy is in there. You know, he came in against uh, St. John's, missed a couple open threes, had a tough look on a drive, got called for a couple nickel and dime fouls, and that was pretty much his contribution to the game. And, you know, I don't know if he's nursing some sort of injury that he's just going to have to play through or, uh, you know, if this is who he is at this point. But, you know, he looked at the, at the risk of playing that one of the armchair psychologists on a guy I don't really know. He just looked mentally defeated out there. You know, he picked up that second foul on Dunn driving and he looked equal parts frustrated and confused with just a dash of over it. And, you know, I can't say that I would have felt any differently in his shoes, but, you know, since February began, he's scored 18 points in five games. He's put up an O rating of over 70 once. He's turned the ball over 10 times against eight assists. I mean, that's just not, when you're making a push for a tournament spot, that's not getting it done. And, you know, I don't think I've been – I've hidden the fact that Q is my favorite player. I, I've been vocal in his defense uh, on the pod, on the website, on Twitter. But the bottom line is right now not only is he not part of Xavier's best five, you can make an argument that he's not part of any positive contributing lineup and uh, hasn't been for most of February. <laughs> The, the way back for him, I see as being a guy who uh, just puts his head down and gets into the middle of the defense and is able to initiate the, the offense without turning it over. You know, for most of his career, he's get the ball where Xavier's needed it. One thing that he hasn't been is a, uh, a guy who drives and collapses the defense, and I think that's what X needs from him right now, and I'm, I'm working just not be who he is and if that isn't who he is then his role going forward is going to be eight to ten minutes a game to to spell the other guards and you hope Kiki and Paul don't get into foul trouble and Bryce Moore's knee holds up okay um Brad do you have anything to add was that significantly uh, sufficiently negative for you or do you have more negativity I feel bad for the guy. Um, I maintain that the shoulder injury he suffered at the end of his sophomore year that carried him to the start of his junior year was more significant at the time and has been going forward than I think anybody knew or he knew or Xavier knew. I'm not saying that the training staff tried to cover it up or anything like 
that. But if you look at his numbers from that one seed team, he's just, it's not just the things that he got from having great players to pass the ball to. He's significantly worse in literally every category on the board. He doesn't rebound as well as he did then. His turnover rate is higher. His block rate is down. I know he doesn't block shots, but I mean, just everything is worse. He just looks like a guy who isn't what he used to be. And that's kind of hard to say about a 22-year-old kid who should have everything opening up in front of him. But I think his best days are behind him. I think the only way he can find himself a role on this team is if he turns himself into an elite defender. And we had a guy on Twitter um, mention to us that, uh, to put it mildly, he hasn't looked like an elite defender recently. Um, he doesn't. He's struggling to stay in front of people on defense. He just looks a half beat slow on the offensive end and on the defensive end. And it's kind of sad to watch happen uh, for any Cleveland Indian fans out there. It kind of reminds me of late career Travis Hafner watching not be able to get to fastballs anymore. Any baseball hitter who just suddenly loses it. Uh, IQ has suddenly lost it. It's too bad. He still does not merit all the vitriol that he gets on social media because it's not like he's out there throwing games. He just isn't very good right now. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. There have been so many, I feel like, um, social media funerals for Q's career um, at this point. Uh, Maybe that's just me. But I mean, in in January, you, you look at halfway through January, um, and he had scored, what, 12 points, and his assist to turnover was a lot better than it is in February. But, I mean, uh, people were wondering if he was done then. Then he comes back from the knee injury. He scores 19 points. He hits five three-pointers in a game. Um, and you could clearly see what he can do for the team. You know, hit five three-pointers in a game um, is a good thing. So I'm not ready to – I think he's he's got to come back in him. Um, but I mean, I'm not positive he does, but I think he does. Um, and part of that is that I want to believe he does because I want Q to, um, play well and do well and help Xavier win. But part of me thinks, you know, I mean, it's the end of his college basketball career and I don't know what Q's plans are after college. It may be, these are the last meaningful basketball games he's going to play. And I just don't believe he's going to, you know, let them go by the wayside feeling bad for himself or, um, you know, kind of sitting there and, and saying, well, you know, what can I do? I, I think he's going to find a way to make an impact um, at some point the, the, the rest of the way, um, you know, because, when you see the end, it's, it's kind of hard to, uh, accept. It's kind of hard to, um, just sit there and take it. So I don't think he's going to, I think he's going to find a way to make an impact and help this team because this is it for him. Um, certainly at Xavier and, and, you know, I don't, again, I don't know. What's interesting is one of his top four comparisons on Ken Palm is, uh, Remy Abel's junior year, which was his first year at Xavier. Um, and you can kind of squint and see some of the similar similarities. I mean, they they both um, do not do a lot on the glass. 
They both defer mostly on offense. Um, Remy did more so than uh, than Q. Uh, The big difference being that Remy shot 41% from three that year. (laughs) So if Q can turn it around and end the year with a 41% mark from three, I think um, he'll shut a lot of people up, you know? So I think if he ends with 41% mark from two, he might shut a lot of people up. Well, hopefully he would shut you up. I think (laughs) that is something most of the planet is hoping for. Anyway, um, so we have a lot of questions this week, actually, uh, from Twitter and Facebook. Uh, So much so that, uh, unfortunately, some of them we are not going to be able to get to. um, And some of them we we rolled into others. Um, So we thank you guys for the interaction we got this week. Um, The first one is from Alex Donovan 31. Um, It says, if X gets placed in the 8-9 or 7-10 game, which of the one or two seeds would you like most to see in a possible round of 32 matchup? And who would you like to see the least? So those one and two seeds... As of right now, um, they would be Baylor, Kansas, San Diego State, Gonzaga, Duke, Maryland, Dayton, and Florida State. So out of those eight teams, who would you most like to see Xavier play in a potential second-round matchup, and who would you least like them to see them play? Joel, right off go the ahead. I think Dayton would be fun for a couple of reasons. One of them is it's Dayton and uh, – Anytime we can play Dayton, I'm going to feel a high-level confidence about that. Uh, obviously, we own them at Cintas. I think everybody remembers the last time we played them on a neutral site during a tournament. We mopped the floor with them. But the one thing I look at, um, obviously, they, they're having a really good season. They're 24-2. and two. Anthony Grant has them executing at a high level. But... Their defense doesn't force turnovers. Their defense isn't that strong. It's just outside the top 50 on the Ken Palm. But it doesn't force turnovers, and they are bad on the glass at both ends. They kind of keep their head above water. They're basically average on the defensive glass, and they're miserable on the offensive glass. And that feeds right into Xavier's strengths of completely cleaning the glass. They do shoot uh, something like 61 or 62% from inside the arc, which is best in the nation. But, uh, you know, that's against the A-10. So I think if Xavier wants to pull some sort of big upset that, uh, you know, playing against Dayton in that 7-2 or 10-2 game, I think that would be their best opportunity. Dayton's uh, pretty much their whole resume is built on being a really good, really efficient offense, and they have beaten the brakes off of a lot of A-10 teams. But their um, non-conference schedule doesn't impress me that much. They played three A-level games on Ken Palm in the non-con and lost two of them. Uh, That was neutral sites to Kansas and Colorado. Their one A-level win outside of conference is a neutral site against St. Mary's, who they beat by 10 back on December 8th. So, um, you know, I've been the been the guy cheering for that A-10 team that everybody is kind of questioning because their resume is built on running through a lot of, a lot of meh competition in the conference. 
And now I'm on the other side of that. And if I had to pick out a team that Xavier would want to see in the second round of the ones and twos, Dayton would be the one I'd have circled. Okay. Oh, somebody else um, who we shouldn't want to play. <laughs> I would say that we should not want to play Florida State because I don't want to see Florida State in any sort of second round game ever again um, for reasons that are still too soon to talk about. If you want to talk about bad matchups in a team that could really give Xavier fits, um, I think Gonzaga would be a tough game. They hammer the class on both ends. They're better than Xavier on the class on both ends. And the other thing that they do that is different from what Xavier does is that when they shoot the ball, it goes in the hoop, um, which could talk me through that. Problematic. So it's when one of your guys, like, is that allowed? If he's not laying it up, there's a thing called a jump shot. And that's not actually just designed to get the ball to Tyreek after bouncing it off of something else. Um, now, we've gotten quite good at playing carom passes to Tyreek Jones. Um, Gonzaga prefers to just have their shots go in. They play really fast. Uh, they make everything. Their second year nation at 2.0% is their 57.5%. Give you some idea how good Dayton is 62% is. The difference in with Gonzaga Dayton is that Gonzaga shoots almost 40% behind the arc, too. They would be a nightmare matchup. They're going to be a nightmare matchup for anybody. They really don't match up well with Xavier because of the way they can control the glass. They're big, um, even bigger than X is. They're deep, and they can get – well, I say they're deep. Depend After you're watching Xavier play and you see like six guys play, you think they're deep. Um, they would be tough. I would be all in for a Dayton matchup. I think that would be great, just theater, if nothing else. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, if I'm if I'm picking, go ahead and miss me with anybody out of the Big Twelve. Baylor hasn't lost since like the first week of the season. But just to go back to the Florida State matchup, they're they're twenty first in the Kempom but they've got a really strong resume. They've won some tight games and they're in the top 10 in the nation in forcing turnovers. So um, if you loved watching Xavier turn it over 22 times against St. John's, then maybe this is the game for you, but just imagine St. John's, but good. And that's Florida state. So a uh, Gonzaga, it's also worth noting Probably if they continue to play like they have been, they're going to be the one seed in Spokane, which is also where they play their home games. Don't ask me how they pulled that little bit of voodoo, but they have. So not only are they a horrible matchup for Xavier, but effectively that's going to be a road game for anybody playing them. We say uh, we don't want Xavier um, against anybody from the Big 12. And while I agree, the Baylor and Kansas are both bad matchups. I think... um, Watching Tyreek Jones and Yudoka Azabuki go at it would be a lot of fun. Um, Azabuki is, uh, you know, seven footer. He's like, if Romero Gill were good at scoring instead of just swatting the basketball, and sometimes his opponent. And uh, so watching those two guys go at it, however long the refs let them go at it, uh, would be great. I think. I don't know that that Xavier really would have a plan for Devon Dotson or um, <clears throat> Marcus Garrett or any of the other great players that Kansas has, but you want to talk about theater. Um, 
you know, watching those two guys go at it and Joel and his wife fight um, during an NCAA tournament game, uh, highly entertaining. So anyway, um, but yeah, I agree. As far as matchups go, Dayton is probably the one I think that Xavier matches up best with and that, um, you know, Xavier has the most history with, I guess. So good question, Alex. Um, Next, we have a question from Braden. Do you realistically think Xavier can close the regular season five and oh, why or why not? So, Brad, you're going to tell us why not, because you're a negative person. Um, because they're too inconsistent. Uh, we somehow beat St. John's in what I think was a monument to just refusing to lose a game when turning the ball over 22 times. If we say turn the ball over 22 times against Villanova, we'll lose by 40. Um, that's probably an exaggeration, but Xavier's offense isn't consistently good enough, I don't think, to run the table on the big list. But you look at the games, Nova at home is definitely winnable. Uh, DePaul at home is definitely winnable. You got a tough one at Georgetown, the way Georgetown's playing. Mac McClung might be back for that. Homer Year 7 might be back healthy for that. Somebody else on their team will have gotten hurt by then, I'm sure, but um, they would be tough. Right now, Ken Palm predicts, predicts Xavier to lose at Providence in basically a coin flip game. That's another tough one. And then you come back to Butler. I think the same reason that the Big East is so good for building a tournament resume kind of keeps you from being able to tear off what would end up being six straight. By the same token, none of those games do you look at and say, okay, that is definitely a loss. Um, this isn't like going back to peak Villanova at Villanova where we have some sort of voodoo hex on us. Um, could go 5-0. and oh. I just think that at some point in time, inability to make shots or inability to hold on to the ball and not throw it to the other team aren't going to bite Xavier. Um, I'm also one of those people that doesn't like the team to have won too many games going into the tournament, not for any sort of like momentum or anything I just get nervous when we want to because then I think we'll do something that goes back to our superstition thing from last week. And it's ridiculous. I'm aware of that. Just as long as you're aware. At least you're aware of it. All right. Um, so, Joel, do you think this team can run off five in a row to end the regular season? Absolutely. First of all, Braden, I'm glad you asked. Thank you for your support. Uh, follow us on social media. Enter to win sweepstakes if we ever run them. But the three home games we have, let's look at those first. We've played, obviously, each of those teams on the road. We're one and two, and our aggregate scoring in that is minus three. So in three games, we've been outscored by a total of three points, all of those being away games. These are not juggernauts or, you know, undefeatable villains that we're going up against. Like Brad said, it's not peak Nova at Nova where we just go into the game defeated already. These are two teams that we played to close final scores and a team that we beat, which also happens to be DePaul. Um, Villanova, that was a while ago, but X punched with them. We gave up a big run and scrapped back into it the whole way. Um, Butler, like Brad pointed out, the final score might flatter us a little bit, but on the other hand, uh, a five-point final score is still a five-point final, and 
you know, if you outscore a team, you don't need to play better than them. You've still beaten them. And these games will be at home in front of the students and what's almost certain to be a capacity crowd with the uh, SRO sections opened in Cintas. So I'm not counting Xavier out of any home game at this point in time, and certainly not a home game against three teams that have outscored us by an average of one point on the road in the games we've played against them already. Georgetown is such a weird game to call because every time something happens to them that you'd think would make them worse, they somehow either stay steady or get better. Uh, They're down to like six scholarship guys or something like that. And their two best people or their two best players were McClung and Yurt Seven before those guys got hurt and that didn't bury them. So who knows about Georgetown, but on paper, that's a matchup that we're, we're definitely capable of winning. And then the Providence game is a toss up, you know, maybe uh, somebody on their team gets hot. Uh, Alpha Diallo, you know, when they played Seton Hall, he started the game three of three from behind the arc. And I tweeted out when Seton Hall was down 20, that they were probably going to come back and win because I didn't think Alpha Diallo would stay that hot and he ended the game five of five beyond the arc. So jokes on me, coach Cooley did a great job getting those shots to go in the basket, but I don't know necessarily that they've got a horse that they can ride like that. And if Jason Carter comes out and bangs on their center a couple of times again, you know, that might mentally break them. So uh, like Brad said, you look at a five-game winning streak, and if you look at it in total, it seems improbable. But Xavier doesn't have to go out and win five games. They just have to go out and win the game in front of them. And if they do that five straight times, there you have it. So is it likely? Probably not. But is it out of the realm of possibility? Absolutely not. You know, I wouldn't be surprised to be recording this on March 8th or whatever day we record that week saying, wow, X ripped off five straight, not because they were the better team five straight times, but because they found five different weird ways to win in different matchups and they rode the home crowd down the stretch. So if we're sitting there on March 8th and Xavier has won these five games, you would count it as a five game winning streak with the St. John's win in front of it or <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you I th- just say they've I think won we'd six prob- straight? <laughs> I think we would probably look back to this question and be like, hey, remember that time some rando asked us if we thought Xavier could win five straight games it's, five games ago? We're putting we're, we're putting the be- pin in oh, history man. right here. <laughs> we, we won 22 out of 31. That was pretty cool, guys. Actually, you know what? AD is old hat. Why don't we start measuring years from that time Braden asked us that question on Twitter? Um. I don't know. Just something to think about. I don't know who decides that. Uh, I think it was the Romans. So dig them up. See if we can get that going. Um, We've got Mike P on Facebook. He said, aside from the very worthy commendation for this team's scrappiness and recent addition in the impressive play of Zach and Kiki, what can actually work harder platitudes aside? Thank you for that, Mike, because I think a lot of people oversimplify this question, but what can actually be done to, take control of the ball and lessen the turnovers. So obviously 22 turnovers is bad. 
Um, so Mike has a valid question here. What can Xavier do to clean that up moving forward, Brad? Wow. Um, I think Mike work is harder, great... right? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, they just got to work harder, come together as a team, uh, you know, do little things. Have they thought about practicing free throws? Yeah. Right. Just these guys who have been playing basketball their whole lives. They know a lot, a lot less about the game than I do sitting on my couch at home. It's, it really um, is. Maybe it's harder to do than think about. I don't know. That's no, but really... <laughs> in, we're not making fun of Mike because he did point out there needs to be some type of tactical exchange or does there. I mean, it's 22 turnovers in the game. Okay. A 22 turnovers in the game is not okay. Um, All right. Unless you're somehow playing like on a hundred possession game. Even then, it's still not great. It's um, still kind of high. There's or a couple. You're playing St. John's. I think they can do is that for one, they're not going to always face teams led by Mike Anderson, and I love the way that he coaches defense. Um, it had somehow slipped my mind that he was coaching St. John's until they cut to him the first time on the sideline, and I was like, "Oh crap, this could be all night," and it was. Um, I think using Kiki Tandy to handle the ball more might be helpful. He wasn't great against St. John's in terms of turnovers, um, but I mean, he only had four, so that's not as many as, say, Tyreek had. I don't think Tyreek is always going to turn the ball over five times. That's a little bit of an aberration because some of his turnovers came after somebody assaulted him and he, as he's blacking out, let go of the ball. Um, I didn't understand some of the officiating down low i won't say biased towards either team but the way st john's plays it helped them for it to essentially be ufc fight in the paint that's how nosh picked up a couple of his turnovers too um paul scruggs at one time spun on his man at the top of the key and lj figueroa just kind of ran through him like a free safety and took the ball uh while scruggs tried to remember where he was and we just went right away um i could i didn't understand that one at all but to my point, <laughs> right, least, like he just plows him over and the ball goes bouncing away and then he picks it up and the ref's like clean. And I'm like, he didn't even like know the ball was there. I, I thought they were going to check it for targeting. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. It looked like he led with his head there. Um, right. I was like, crap. Ironhead Hayward is an excellent. This is, this is bad for us guys. <laughs> he can't be tackled. The technical throwback. Uh, but Mike is right. I mean, even given some pretty questionable calls, Xavier just wasn't. I mean, we had a couple guys dribble the ball off their own leg and out of bounds, and it's hard to blame that too much on the officials unless they like yelled something to distract them. Um, which I, I think they're just regular incompetent, not malicious incompetent. Uh, Xavier looked a little bit better later in the game when, of all people, Jason Carter came up and helped bring the ball up and we used Carter Marshall at Scruggs. Um, Carter only turned the ball over once. He dribbled through the press a couple times for the stick that he takes and for how often he looks a little bit out of confidence. It was weird to see him get the ball 80 feet from the bucket and look like he had a plan and we leaned into that a little more late in the game and that at least got the ball into the front court. Beyond there, I, I don't know if there is a great deal of just Guys just got to not make the dumb mistakes, and this gets us all into those platitudes. But at the end of the day, I, there's not like some great coaching thing you can do where you can say, 
hey, Keith, you throw it to the guys on our team, that's going to dawn on him, and he's never going to turn the ball over. Sometimes turnovers happen. Xavier, if they tighten it up, they can punch, I genuinely think, with any team in the nation because of their defense, but they haven't to that point, to this point yet this year. Um, so that might be a forlorn hope, but it's definitely there. And what's frustrating about the turnovers is that that gives the opponent a chance to take our greatest strength out of the game, and that's half-court defense. You know, St. John's wasn't having a lot of joy against facing five guys with their feet set looking at them. But if they, you know, truck stick Paul Scruggs and they can shoot an uncontested layup, they're going to convert a lot more of those. Uh, One thing, just one adjustment that can be made is – Najee and Paul both love to spin when they drive. And if they're able to initiate that spin a little higher and a little more under control, um, that opens up a little bit of baseline when the opponent steps up. And you saw that with uh, the last two possessions. Um, uh, The one Najee spun and kind of fumbled and ended up in trouble. And uh, Rasheem Dunn, I think it was, came up with the turnover and eventually drew Paul's fifth foul. Uh, the one after that, Najee spun a little higher, fumbled it again, but managed to regain control in just a little bit less of a crowd. And when his gravity pulled in St. John's, uh, Zach Freeman made that nice little run to the baseline and got that that baby hook teardrop thing that ended up being uh, the game's winning basket. So for those guys to be able to uh, turn with their heads up and to have somebody running, uh, obviously, Najee's ball control doesn't mean anything if there's nobody making that cut. But if we can, uh, if those guys, when they draw baseline help, have somebody to dump it off to, that'll help a little. But like you said, it's it's mostly more about execution than trying to turn on the light bulb for somebody who's been playing ball for 20 years and this is just how he plays. Okay. Um, good question, Mike. Uh, next one we have is from uh, TJ on Twitter at Barty34. Um, says, with the big lineup to start games, would it be smart to put Zach on the three, put Tyreek on the elbow, and let Jason go to work on smaller defenders in the post and work the offense that way? Obviously, the last game against St. John's, Xavier saw a lot of zone. I would think with Xavier um, having only the 293rd best three-point shooting um, in the nation, they're probably gonna see a lot of zone. Uh, so is what TJ's talking about here, uh, running Jones at the high post and letting Carter work on somebody smaller. Is that, uh, something that's valid? Do you guys think that is something that, um, could work, uh, going forward? So, I mean, basically what we're looking at is inverting the bigs there. Cause I think, uh, despite the fact that he is probably technically the bigger guy, uh, Zach Fremantle has more business away from the hoop on offense at this point in time than Jason Carter does. So uh, the problem with this is that it is your you're one adjustment away from this being nothing. So if the opponent says, man, maybe we shouldn't have our point guard guard Jason Carter or whatever, then they roll a big man to him and then you have Tyreek whose effective scoring range is about six feet standing 15 feet away from the bucket and you're asking him to do something. So 
I think that's more of a look than a strategy. That's something you can do to try to poach a bucket or two before the opponent either changes their matchups or drops into a zone, which will give us all kinds of trouble. But it's hard to say that that's something that we could uh, just make our bread and meat at this point in time in the season. I think TJ has a point here, maybe not in this specific thing that he says that it has to be Carter. Um, but when Xavier runs the the starting five, they run, they have a height advantage um, at almost every position. You know, you, you think of a two guarding Najee Marshall, Najee Marshall is taller than most twos in the league. And Paul Scruggs is taller than most point guards in the league. Um so I think that Xavier bringing Tyreek Jones to the high post and hopefully drawing the biggest defender from the other team away from the rim and letting the other guys use their height advantages um, might be something. Well, I mean, it is something Xavier does, but it might be something that Xavier leans a little more into uh, because the three point shooting is not very good right now nor has it been all year uh, but Xavier does have that going for him you know they don't necessarily have a height advantage with Jones against an average center but I think at the other four positions or at least um, one through three they would have a height advantage in most games a question from KJ at KJ Hines uh, why did it take Steele so long to go zone against St. John's it was like a layup line out there for three quarters of the game um that may be an exaggeration. And part of that was the amount of live ball turnovers Xavier committed, which was 15, which is a lot. Um, but is zone a look Xavier should lean into going forward, especially if they are starting the three bigs? I think uh, what the difference, I think in what Xavier was trying to avoid in the zone was giving up clean looks from behind the arc. Um, you know, Marcellus Erlington was kind of having himself a game anyway, and there was a possession uh, late uh, past the last media timeout where they fiddled around against our zone a little bit and just pitched it to him wide open in the corner. And Tyreek ended up charging him down and contesting and did a good enough job that he missed. But uh, the ensuing long rebound, St. John's pulled in fairly easily because our best rebounder was dragging himself back out of the corner. So I think the reason um, coach Steele was hesitant to go zone there was because of the, the problems that it was going to create getting Tyreek out of the middle where he's just dominating the glass. Uh, So it's an adjustment that he was able to make and they were able to do enough in the zone to, to win the game. But you're asking some other guys to carry a lot of the rebounding load against a team like St. John's that was targeting kind of those corners. And, you know, should Erlington knock down one more jumper from over there, you know, we're bemoaning our fate and five and eight in conference. Yeah. I don't, okay. I would push back a little against KJ. Um, St. John's only had 36 points in the paint. They only stopped 35% from the floor for the game. Um, It was just they had 22 fast break points at 21 points off the turnovers. Like you said, Bri, we were just like punting them into these half-court runouts where any team is going to score. We threw the zone look at them, but in that specific play that you were talking about, it really hit us hard, and that comes back to our ability to defensive rebound too. I think man is where – 
we've made our name. We're the 20th best defense in the nation. Flipping it to zone a handful of times is a good idea just to show a different look, but we don't need to go for complicated things here. Okay. Uh, we got a question from Pete uh, at Pete underscore cast. How does Xavier need to finish the season to be considered a successful year? So um, Brad, where does Xavier need to get this year for you to consider this year a success? You know, it's hard to pick out what makes a successful year. Cause there's basically uh, two separate seasons in college basketball. There's everything you do to get into the tournament or not. Obviously, if you don't make the tournament, especially at a program like Xavier, that's not a successful year. And then there's what happens in the tournament. You know, X, X had a couple uh, really good seeded teams that had really great years under coach Mack and then didn't go very far in the tournament. And those seasons kind of felt bitter at the end. So I would say a, a successful regular season, getting back to nine and nine in the conference, anything above that to me is gravy. But to go from where they were sitting at two and six to be looking at keeping the above 500 conference record streak intact, that would be successful from the Regular season perspective, that would also do enough to get this team into the tournament. And then, uh, you know, depending on the matchups, I'd like to see X win the first game and be in a second round game where they don't look uh, overwhelmed, you know, continue to punch with whoever that they end up playing against, show the same spirit they have uh, battling back at different times this year. And I think that would have me heading into the off season, feeling happy about what Travis Steele is building and what he was able to get done with, with what we had this year. Yeah, I think, um, I don't know. It is, it is kind of a hard question to answer because like you said, a lot of it comes down to what happens in March, you know, when Xavier had a pretty mediocre regular season and then made that incredible run to the elite eight. Um, that felt like a great season, um, especially, you know, beating Arizona in the sweet 16 and everything, but objectively it was not as good as the next season, which ended with a really bitter taste because they, they of course didn't make it out of the first weekend despite being a one seed. Um, but I think if this team gets back to the NCAA tournament, stops the NCAA tournament drought at, at one year and um you know plays well in the ncaa tournament wins a game in the ncaa tournament i don't even know if they need to make the second weekend for me to be satisfied and say that was a good season it's maybe not as good of a season as i hoped they'd have i always hope xavier has a great season though you know and wins the national championship but i think if they can make it into the tournament and win a game most reasonable people will say, yeah, that that was, you know, a fairly successful end to the season, um, especially, obviously, from, from where it was at one point. All right, now for uh, our last couple quick hits right here at the end. So um, you guys, I'm sure you guys saw it, and probably most of our listeners saw the, the sad news this past weekend that Tony Fernandez uh, passed away as a complication from kidney disease. 
Uh, Tony Fernandez, obviously for the three of us, um, is a name that stirs some bittersweet uh, Cleveland Indians fans. So he had done a ton of work with charity and was a person of um, just incredible faith um, and sought to make things better for people in the Dominican Republic where he was from. Uh, But in a sporting sense, Tony Fernandez um, obviously is associated with two moments in Cleveland Indians uh, fandom, obviously his home run in game six of the 1997 ALCS to send the Indians to the world series. And then in game seven of that world series, the 11th inning um, did not come up with a double play ball. And um, the Indians ended up losing the world series uh, in extra innings in that game. Um, So is there any other sporting uh, person that has such a, uh, I don't, I don't know what, what word I'm looking here, disparity, I guess, between your memories of them. You know, I mean, Tony Fernandez hits a home run, puts us in the world series. We don't have that world series without him, but then obviously um, you think about how that world series went and it's kind of impossible not to think about Tony Fernandez um, in that ball rolling through him and into the outfield. So do you guys have anyone who competes with that? I'd go to that same team with Jose Mesa. That's the guy who jumped out at me when I saw this question show up on the script. Uh, At that point in time, I was young enough that I would judge a relief pitcher by how many saves he had, and Jose Mesa had a freaking ton of saves. It seems like you handed Jose Mesa the ball, and he would hand you back a save, warm and toasty, fresh out of the oven. And then one day we handed Jose Mesa the ball, needing only to return a save that would be carrying the World Series trophy with it, which I guess we learned that the current MLB commissioner considers just a chunk of metal. But that was a very important chunk of metal to me when I was 12. And when Jose Mesa instead handed me a basket full of tears and apathy, I didn't know what to do with it. And so I was emotionally catatonic for about a week after that game. Thanks, Jose. He did also threaten Omar Vizquel later. So much later, (laughs) much later. Anyway, Brad. Uh, No, I loved Tony Fernandez. Um, I think you guys know that my favorite memory of being an Indians fan is his home run in that ALCS. I think because every time somebody asks this question, that's the answer that I give. I can distinctly remember it. I loved Tony. I'd always liked watching him play before he was an Indian. Um, And frankly, I'm not able to emotionally process everything since you guys have now just brought 1997 right back to the fore for me. And I distinctly (laughs) remember being 15 years old and unabashedly crying at the end of that World Series. I'll still own that today. I don't feel bad about it. I was crushed. I still am crushed. Let's talk about something else. Um, Okay. (laughs) <laughs> I was going to say the only one that I don't know might sneak in there. Um, it might be Miles Davis uh, just because he was adored by Xavier fans. Um, and obviously, I mean, the invisible daps and the huge shots he hit and the way he played, there was not a lot about Miles Davis's th- first three years in, well, 
really his his sophomore junior year that you could look at and say well you know i don't like that i mean he was an incredible player and incredible representative for the um team and then uh it wasn't something that happened on the floor but his senior year obviously he only played in like three games and didn't really contribute and then um you know he had the long suspension came back and then left the team um and it wasn't as visceral as Fernandez or as Mesa, but it was a, a really bitter end to a great Xavier career, I think, and, and one that I think stands out as so many Xavier players have gone out, you know, not on top, but with great memories. Um, he was one that really never got his moment as a senior, um, and it, it always kind of bums me out when I go back and look at uh, the highlights, you know, I watch the highlights of Xavier beating Villanova probably about once a week. Um, and he was incredible that game, as was Ed Sumner. Um, okay, so as far as memorable sporting events go, Brayden did ask, uh, what's the most memorable sporting event you've been to in person? So, Brad, what is the most memorable sporting event you've been to in person? I don't remember the exact date, um, but it was back when Dad yeah. was comfortable letting an 18-year-old take his three younger brothers at the time and drive to Cleveland from where we grew up in Dayton. Um, we went up, went to a Browns preseason something, and then walked to Jacobs Field to watch the Indians. Ben Broussard hit a grand slam to win the game. Um, ton of fun, huge crowd. That was back when the Indians so were drawn then, big. And the best part of it was that afterwards we went to talk to the players and Joel told Ben Broussard he wouldn't have had to hit the home run if he had just caught a foul pop-up he dropped earlier in the game. <laughs> It was both a great memory and quintessential Joel in one moment. <laughs> Just the most Joel that ever Joel. <laughs> it Depends is the most credit. Joel moment other than John Joe Shelby screaming at Bruno after uh, Iosi Paris scored that winner in the championship. <laughs> Hilarious. To Ben's credit, he took it very well. <laughs> uh, my most memorable sporting event uh, is, a, is an event almost everyone listening to this podcast has no clue even happened. I played NAIA baseball. I had a very statistically forgettable career, but had a ton of fun in so doing. Uh, One year, I had the honor of being a junior varsity only player, and our varsity went up to play UK, who you guys might know as a D1 school, and we were ahead 10 to 4 in the bottom of the ninth at UK and a series of increasingly improbable events led to us losing on a walk-off three-run home run. And just seeing people not only that like I cheered for, but like guys I knew, people who I shared a suite with, uh, my friends walk off as that happened. You know, when I'm approaching room temperature and the last two synapses in my brain fire, that'll be the sporting event that they carry with them. So um, not a good memory, but it is a memory. And if you want just strictly most memorable, that was it. Wow. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> that is <laughs> some great stuff. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, I don't really know what the most memorable sporting event I have ever witnessed. Well, actually, I do. I do. Um, 
our two youngest brothers were in both in high school last year and they were playing a district final game in soccer and it was like sleeting and the the um weather was horrible and they had a player sent off so they're playing 11 against 10 and it was just a terrible night <laughs> to be playing um and one of the leading scorers in the state was on their opponent team and Braden um, marked that dude out of the game and they took it to two extra times and ended up winning on like a 32 yard strike um, on, a, on a kick straight from the goalkeeper. Um, and that was just an incredible game, mostly because I think without our two youngest brothers playing on that team, they would have lost by several touchdowns. Um, they were both, just amazing that night so anyway that one stuck with me um and finally just to wrap up um which college basketball team other than like the usual suspects like uc and duke and dayton do you love to hate brad um somebody once called me a little ball of hate so it's kind of hard for me to narrow this down but it's whichever low to mid-major team each year starts to come up with some sort of bizarre concoction which they see their way into the tournament and then complain about the high majors taking their spot. This year, I read a Furman fan today talking about why Furman should be in uh, even if they lose to Eastern Tennessee tonight. They shouldn't be. They have no Q1 wins. They have two Q2 wins, but they're all up in arms because they're a mid-major and they deserve their spot. And no, you don't play somebody, schedule somebody, beat somebody, and then get back to us. But if I just had to pick one team, I think you're always safe hating Liberty. There you go. Liberty, Liberty, <laughs> Liberty, Liberty. Um, okay, Joel, who you got? Not Liberty, though. That is pretty safe. Just as an institution. Um, oh, boy. Uh, I'm going to pick Texas. I'm going to preface this by saying I'm with Brad. Um but I'm going to say not just the low to mid major that comes up with the weird stat, but I'm going to say the low to mid major that uh, in our season preview and know your non-conference opponent, we say that Xavier's a lot better than, and then their fans get all up in our mentions like, Oh, you're going to see when Cam Payne brings the pain train to town and then X runs them off the court and everybody goes quiet. So that's always fun. But I hate Texas because I hate Shaka smart. Um, I don't I mean, necessarily I think he's smart. Oh, me too, except for how I hate him. I don't think he's a bad oh, bait and switch. <laughs> Got him. <laughs> but his strategy is literally basically what we just got done complaining about St. John's doing to Xavier. You just you hack so hard that the refs get tired of calling fouls. And then when the other team is you know, all wrung out and beaten up. You get like six straight turnovers because somebody's arm fell off and I'll never forget them for what, forgive them for what they did to D Davis when he was the only ambulatory guard we had on the roster. And they were just like, punch the little guy and steal the ball from him. And Shaka's over there rubbing his bald head, looking like freaking Dr. Evil. So I'll pick Texas until Shaka smart gets run out of there or chases another payday out of town. And then I'll pick that team. If he goes to the D-League, if he takes over Dave Lato's legacy as the head coach of the main Red Claws, I'll follow their games just to cheer against him. Unless Kaiser Isn't that who Kaiser Gates plays for? <laughs> I said unless Kaiser is still involved. But Go! 
I realize I went up like nine octaves when I said <laughs> that, but <laughs> you can't. I mean, it's Kaiser. <laughs> Kaiser will be in the big show by then. That's true. It's a, it's a travesty. He's not already. Anyway, um, I'm going with Auburn because for many of the same reasons Joel stated, uh, their head coach, man by the name of Bruce Pearl, um, people are like, he cheated. I, that's dumb. Aaron Kraft is a snitch. Um, but <laughs> I don't think what he did was egregious. I think him lying and then coming up with like just more and more extravagant lies to try and cover his own tail um, was irritating. But I mostly just don't like any time there's a camera anywhere, Bruce Pearl finds it and like does his whole shtick in front of it. Like, oh, look, I'm throwing my my coat on the ground i i took my tie off i painted my chest as a grown man for a college women's basketball game like i i just can't stand his like he just seems so so inauthentic put on yeah and i don't like it and auburn's team last year i just i don't know they 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 annoyed me i understand they made the final four um i thought it was kind of funny when they lost to uh virginia after uh what's his face brown was making the choke gesture at kyle guy and then kyle guy drilled all three free throws to win the game um it was good stuff but anyway that is going to do it for us this week and uh xavier is of course back in action once again um and we will be back with you at the beginning of next week to talk down those games and see how the rest of the season plays out for Xavier. So thank you guys for listening and we will catch you next week.